0: Hello, and welcome to the 14th and final episode of the Smart, Equitable Commonwealth, co-creating the society we want. My name is Dan O'Brien, and I'm the director of the Boston Area Research Initiative. Our closing keynote, What Cities and Towns Need Now?, was held on July 31st, 2020. Our panel included Mayor Martin J. Walsh of Boston, Mayor Dan Rivera of Lawrence, Mayor Yvonne M. Spicer of Framingham town manager Steve Bartha of Danvers, and Mark Drayson, executive director of the Metropolitan Area Planning Council. It was moderated by Sid Espinosa, director of philanthropy and civic engagement at Microsoft, and the former mayor of Palo Alto, California. You can also find video recordings of each panel on our YouTube channel at bitly slash bari video. We have completed 13 panels to date, covering a range of different topics, pretty much every angle of public policy you can touch, um, and really learning about the great work that has been done by Greater Boston Civic Data Ecosystem over the last year, but also then having to do a lot of mental acrobatics to apply this to the new and daunting world we currently inhabit, right? One filled with references to, quote, a new normal, um, to building back better, and also a continued need and focus for transformations Uh, that address persistent and pervasive racial and economic inequities in our society. Now today, we're gonna have a conversation that flips this narrative around. Instead of presenting past work and pivoting it, we're going to ask a series of experts how we should pivot our efforts as researchers, policymakers, practitioners, advocates, funders, and community members. The experts in question are three mayors, a town manager, and the director of our Regional Planning Council, which supports 101 municipalities. Um, And they will provide us with a unique set of insights into what cities and towns need now and how this community, right, the Bari community and everyone associated with research policy in the region um, can help to address these needs moving forward. So with that, I want to turn it over to our moderator, Sid Espinosa. He is uniquely positioned to lead this conversation. Uh, He is the Director of Philanthropy and Civic Engagement at Microsoft, where he and his team work with cities across the US to provide vital exposure to technology for those who need it most. He's worked repeatedly in a number of different positions at the intersection of technology and policy in roles in the Clinton administration at Hewlett-Packard, and he served two terms as mayor of Palo Alto. So he is, again, uniquely positioned and distinctively able to speak to both sides of this conversation. He has the needs of cities, of towns on the one, on the one side of his expertise and the potential of research and technology to help on the others. Now, as just a last quick thought, I wanna remind the speakers, they already know this, but I wanna say it one more time. Um, keep in mind that you do have a captive audience right now that really wants to help. So please, please be candid and direct with us uh, give us a call to action and tell us how we can bring data tech and research to support your municipality and
1: your peers with that, Sid, please take it away. Thank you, thank you so much, Dan, for that intro and Thank you for your leadership and this incredible series of conversations. If anyone on this call hasn't had a chance to watch the previous sessions, I encourage you to check out those recordings to learn from experts and practitioners about regional issues from transportation to equity in schools. The census one was particularly interesting, pollution. Um, These have been really enlightening sessions and kudos to Bari's conference committee for pivoting during these challenging times and finding a way to deliver this important annual conference. Today, we're in for a real treat. We will spend the next hour talking about what cities and towns need now. And we have this incredible panel of regional leaders to learn from. Let's start by acknowledging that these are unprecedented times. The global pandemic has, of course, changed all of our lives in small and in massive ways. The incredible impact on schools, businesses, hospitals, the economy, et cetera. We've heard about these challenges. But imagine running a city during these times. Imagine running a city from home. Uh, Imagine being in a role where you're holding together an ecosystem where citizens are relying on you for essential services. uh, Where Your population wants you to come up with solutions to life and death problems that are out of your control. Imagine holding a community together through a devastating public health crisis National turmoil about racism and racial inequities um, through skyrocketing unemployment, through a worsening recession. What's it really been like to be mayor for these past five months? How have cities changed in this region during COVID? And where are we headed now? And with so many data scientists, government employees, community leaders, researchers, academics in this audience today, we'll also talk about the changing role of data and technology in cities at this time. Data is obviously at the foundation of Bari's work and Microsoft's business. And we'll talk about a call to action for everybody wanting to get involved. How can you today think about your role in this ever-changing environment? Here's the agenda that we're gonna do. Um, I'll quickly introduce each panelist. We'll invite them to give two minutes of sort of opening comments and context setting for their community. There's a few prepared questions and then we really wanna open it up to the audience. So please submit those questions um, into the Q&A. Give me just a couple seconds here and I'm gonna quickly run through in alphabetical order an introduction of our esteemed guests. Steve Bartha, town manager Danvers since 2014, previously the assistant town manager in Avon, Connecticut for five years. He's only the fifth town manager since this position was created in 1949. He serves as the community's chief executive and fiscal officer and oversees the municipally owned electric department. He also serves on the board of directors for the Massachusetts Municipal Association and is an executive officer for the Massachusetts Municipal Management Association. I knew that was going to get me. Uh, And a fun fact, he taught for two years uh, high school English in Baton Rouge as part of Teach for America. Mark Drayson serves as the executive director for the Metropolitan Area Planning Council He's done that since 2002. He leads the agency staff in their work to provide technical and professional services that improve physical, social, economic health for the people who live and work in the Metro Boston region. The organization covers a wide range um, of areas related to smart growth and regional collaboration, including transportation, land use, water resources, clean energy, public safety, public health, housing, economic development, and uh, collective procurement. Prior to joining the organization, Mr. Grayson served as the president and CEO of the Massachusetts Association of Community Development Corporations. He also served, as I think many of you know, two terms as a state representative from Boston and Brookline from 1991 to 95. Mayor Rivera, a Lawrence kid, I love that in your bio, Mayor Rivera has served our country in the Army. He became a military police officer stationed in Germany. After his tour overseas, he returned home and worked his way through college on a GI Bill at UMass Amherst completing his undergraduate degree in only three years and becoming the manager of the stadium courts and Market Street housing projects at the Lawrence Housing Authority where he grew up. While at the Housing Authority, Dan went uh, to school nights and weekends and received an MBA from Suffolk University. In 2012, he ran for mayor on a platform of change for the city Became the 59th mayor of the city of Lawrence, and after four years of progress, was reelected in 2017. Dr. Spicer um, is the first mayor of the city of Framingham and was sworn into office January 1, 2018, the same day that Framingham officially became a city. 32-year Framingham resident and longtime educator, Mayor Spicer was previously the vice president for advocacy and educational partnerships at Boston's Museum of Science appointed to the Governor's STEM Advisory Council in 2012 by Governor Patrick um, as the co-chair of the Council's Teacher Development Committee. She was reappointed in 2017 by Governor Baker and served on the Computer Science and Engineering and Career Pathways Committees. Mayor Spicer was instrumental in establishing the 2001 Massachusetts Technology Engineering Curriculum Framework and, was, and the first ever K through 12 grade Assessment for Technology and Engineering. She also served as advisor um, and content expert to the National Governors Association. Committed to sustainable economic growth, the mayor served on the Massachusetts Business Roundtable, the Massachusetts Office of Treasurer Economic Development Trust Fund, uh, and was a town meeting member and served on the Standing uh, Committee for Ways and Means. Finally, uh, uh, mayor Walsh, thank you so much for joining us, a lifelong champion of working for people um, and uh, in, this city, in the city and the region of Boston, a, a product of the city of Boston, the 54th mayor. In 2018, Mayor Walsh was sworn in to serve a second term. Since taking office, Mayor Walsh focused on strengthening Boston's public schools, promoting global innovation and economy by attracting industry-leading private sector employers, Housing, crime prevention, police-community relations have also been top priorities. He's also had huge wins, as I think people know, related to upgrading the city's digital infrastructure and using technology to transform government services, from parking meter payment apps to the new city website. He's also invited the people of Boston to help build a blueprint for the city's future and imagine Boston 2030, the first citywide plan in half a century. Before taking office, Mayor Walsh served, of course, in the Massachusetts House of Representatives, where he was a leader on job creation, worker protections, substance abuse, mental health, homelessness, K-12 education, and civil rights. He played a key role in defending Massachusetts, um, Massachusetts' pioneering stand on marriage equality. Their bios are much longer, you can find them online. There were so many other things to mention. Thank you for giving me a few minutes to run through those. Now let's get to hearing from them. We will start by opening it up and and having each person, before we talk about um, everything that's happening in the city and how cities have changed, give us some context, information about your city, region that you're representing, some of the policy issues that are top priority for you, even um, pre-COVID or or personal? Why did you run for office? What accomplishments are you proud of? We're trying to get a sense of that color of where you're coming from. And we'll go um, down the list again and start with you, Steve Bartha, Town Manager in Danvers.
2: Thank you, Sid, for that kind introduction. And thank you, Dan, for the invitation to join these distinguished panelists. Town managers generally like to fly under the radar. So it is good once in a while to be coaxed out of our comfort zone uh, on occasions like this. Uh, by the numbers, Danvers is a community of 27,000 people uh, spread across 13 square miles, located just about 15 miles north of Boston. Uh, there is ocean access through the Salem Harbor. We're served by five major highways. Uh, we have a strong local economy underpinned by medical manufacturing, retail, and automotive. Uh, and Danvers is a, it's still a working class town despite uh, recent upticks in wealth and education metrics. Uh, we have relatively low taxes for our region. Um, and in surveys, we, uh, we have residents who express higher than average uh, satisfaction with the services they're getting. And I think importantly, uh, uh, higher than average uh, trust in local government than what you see in, in a lot of parts of the country. Um, we, we have an operating budget uh, across schools, library, utilities, just, just over $160 million. We have 300 employees on the town side, around f- another 400 on the school side. Um, we have elected officials who support the work we do. They expect recommendations to be sound and implementable by the time they receive them. We, in turn, work very hard uh, to maintain their confidence and deliver solid policy recommendations focusing on short-term and long-term needs and opportunities. Uh, One of the recent accomplishments that I think the whole community here is proud of, uh, our credit rating last year was upgraded to AAA. Um, That had been a uh, goal that the community had pursued for a long time. Uh, And it really affirmed years of disciplined financial management uh, by officials and staff and more importantly, it saved the town close to half a million dollars when we issued the first round of debt for a new elementary school that we're building. Um, so managers don't run for office, um, but just quickly, I Sid mentioned I spent some time in Louisiana. I actually uh, was there with Teach for America uh, the year before and after Hurricane Katrina, and uh, it was that was sort of my call to service. Um, I remember clearly being both terrified and exhilarated by the idea of working uh, for a town or a city in the aftermath of something like that, and it... Uh, launched me to pursue an MPA and uh, uh, with the goal of doing what I do now. So um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to join you guys today.
1: Excellent, thank you for being here. Mayor Rivera, tell us about Lawrence. Lawrence is a
3: small city north of Boston. We're about 3.7, uh, 6.7 square miles, uh, about 85, 90,000 people. Uh, we're an immigrant city. We've always been an immigrant city. I always tell people Lawrence is a place with an accent. We've always had an accent. And today just happens to be kids uh, and families from the American public in Guatemala. Uh, back in, in the turn of the century, was Irish kids and Polish kids and Italian kids. And so we're really the place where people come into American society and get a foothold and send their kids to school and really try to advance uh, along for the American dream, buy their first home and send their kids to college. Um, you know, it's uh, the workforce of the Merrimack Valley. So if you own a business between New- Newburyport and Lowell, uh, from some of the New Hampshire all the way to the other side of Boston, people from Lawrence work in your businesses, uh, and it doesn't matter how, how high tech or low skilled, people from Lawrence work in in your uh, in, in your businesses. So we really are a force, uh, uh, a workforce for the region. Uh, we are we're not a very young community. Our budget's about three hundred and eighty million dollars. Um, our school system we have fifteen thousand three hundred kids in our schools. Uh, we we do have. Uh, uh, The displeasure of having been taken over by the state Um, but it means we've been very flexible and dynamic and changing the way we do public education and so our uh, you know our public uh, schools have been doing really good in the last couple years. A lot of uh, more kids are graduating from high school and less kids are dropping out. We're doing better on MCAS um, and we're spending a lot more money on infrastructure around the schools to make sure that the the schools are really the palaces they should be uh, in in public education. Um, You know we I was in business before I came to do uh, to run for office, and mostly because um, the way people perceived our community. And if you googled Lawrence back in the day, uh, you would come up with a, a series of uh, really negative articles about the state of the city. Uh, and you know, we just had had enough of it, and so we decided to run a campaign to uh, to change our city, um, and we won by the slight margin of 81 votes. Is probably more people on the Zoom uh, watching this now than uh than than voted that that i won by and so we we didn't take that for granted and we went to the strong uh said we're gonna we're gonna support everyone and and work for everyone um but our city uh, is a resilient city and we've tried to change the way people think about it and so we try to build a lot of goodwill and we've been pretty successful um i think in changing the way people perceive our city uh we have gotten our finances in order our schools is getting squared away property values are up um, and even in during this covid uh, 19 problem uh, real estate has really stayed steady and businesses have been resilient um, but we're all going through this together um, I think that's all of it I'd like to share it now but that's
4: Lawrence. Great
1: Mayor Spicer.
4: Thank you so much for this opportunity um, to give give you a little perspective of Framingham, uh, we are the one of the uh, probably the newest city in the Commonwealth and probably across the country, um, because we just became a city uh, two and a half years ago, and, um, and I was fortunate enough to be elected to be the first mayor of the city, winning 59% of the vote. We are a city of about 70,000 people and uh, Framingham is quite diverse. About 30% of the population uh, are people of color. And uh, that demographic has been steadily rising. uh, One of the largest population uh, within uh, our community is the Brazilian community. And uh, and they're about roughly about 15% um, of the population. The African-American community is quite small, uh, about five um, uh, five to 6%. And, uh, you know, Framingham, if you look at our history, uh, you know, we we date back to 1700 when we were a town. However, looking at uh, us becoming a city, this was an ongoing uh, discussion that started back in the 1990s. And we finally uh, voted to become a city. in 2017 and uh, by winning a small margin, 112 votes, uh, to become a city and, uh, and I made the decision to throw my hat in the arena to run for this seat, largely because of what I had experienced in Framingham. Um, I came here uh, as a 23 year old first year teacher Uh, to work in the Framingham public schools and I taught middle school and high school and uh, subsequently went on to do a bunch of other great things. And uh, prior to becoming mayor, I um, served as the vice president of advocacy and partnerships at the Museum of Science, leading STEM programs around the world, science, technology, engineering, and math. And my background is technology and engineering. So, you know, very analytical thinking and uh, also I use my skills as an engineer and an educator in this job every single day. So when I think about you know, the, the, the things that I wanted to bring to Framingham, I wanted to first of all bring my breadth of experience, understanding business and industry, understanding, um, uh, working with policy makers, uh, creating policy, um, and also seeing a vision for innovative ideas for jobs at uh, the workforce. So that's the other part of, you know, me looking at this job and seeing the potential for Framingham. We're centrally located. Uh, We're 20 miles directly west of Boston. Uh, We are the hub of Metro West. We employ a number of people in the surrounding communities. Uh, a very diversified workforce where you have life sciences, retail, uh, manufacturing, and uh, our life science industry is growing by leaps and bounds. So that is the other thing too, is that I bring those experiences to this position and really kind of thinking about, you know, the the things in this two and a half years of building a new city, who gets to do that? And uh, I'm pretty proud of where we are um, one of the things I'm very proud of, uh, of you is that I have settled two police contracts. And, and as a result of that, my uh, police department is coming out of civil service, and uh, hopefully the legislators will vote on that this coming week. And, you know, and but I, I, more importantly, I have built a leadership team in Framingham that is uh, trusting of me as their leader. Uh, they are also um, seeing that I will work very hard to support them, and that has been one of the foundations of building anything is uh, developing and cultivating trust in the people around you. And that's something I'm extremely proud of. And I'll talk more about our accomplishments in a little while.
1: Thank you. Mayor Walsh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I know how busy your schedule is. Giving us that perspective of even pre-COVID, how you were thinking about the issues in Boston is, is, is welcome. Thank you.
5: First of all, thank you for having us today. Having me today and, and my colleagues here—they're great, great mayors and town managers—and and Mark does a, a great job as well. So I want to thank everybody. Um, just real quickly about Boston: we, we are seven hundred thousand people. Twenty-eight percent of our residents are foreign born or immigrants. Um, we have fifty percent of our people are uh, people of color. 52 um, percent of the households in our city—the are the leader of that household is a woman. Um, you know, something that's really important. So we're a diverse community. We're 47 square miles. Um, our top priorities uh issues pre-COVID uh, and really still are. Uh, housing is a big issue in Boston. Uh, working on, we came up with a housing plan to create 60, 69,000 units of new housing by the year 2030. We were on pace to meet that. Um, and, and COVID has slowed that down a bit, but we're still moving forward and focus on that. We have the Climate Action Plans, uh, Climate Ready Boston, Boston Harbor Plans resiliency plans, carbon reduction plans. And uh, you know, one of the things I'm proud of, we are a leader in the country when it comes to climate resiliency. We have a lot more work to do. Saying we're a leader in the country can make us feel good in Boston, but certainly as a country, we, we fall way behind other countries in the world. So we have some work to do in that space. On education, um, we've just made a $100 million investment over the next three years and brand new priorities in our districts, as Danny Rivera mentioned. The challenges of urban districts are t- complicated uh, for a whole host of reasons. Uh, we have a, a fairly new superintendent of schools, Brenda Casillas, who, who launched the new plan. And then when COVID came, we had to basically abandon everything we've done the way we're doing it because everything went online. And we're working to, to move forward on that as well as we get here in the front. Uh, Post COVID, I know we'll get into that a in little bit, but really working on police relations and community relations and also looking at our police department. Um, you know, we have a cadet program in the City of Boston Police Department, and our last class of graduates, uh, 108 graduates, we had 22% of our cadets, uh, of our police officers, were were uh, officers of color. Uh, actually, black, 17% Latino, 8% Asian. Uh, I think 50 50% women, roughly. Uh, so we are working on diversifying our police department. Uh, I ran for office in 1996. Um, I we ran for state representative. Uh, uh, why did I run? I think I ran because I wanted to be involved. I was involved in my community. Um, and, and when I ran for office, when I was running for office as a state rep candidate, when I got elected to office, it were two very different things. Uh, and, and I found out in my what I was able to do as a legislator is, is to be able to uh, fight for marriage equality, fight for programs around substance abuse and, and mental health issues, and really get involved in a lot of progressive issues that I care about. Uh, I think, um, you know, and, and, you know, quite honestly, in these times, it's very difficult. Uh, Sid, you talked about in the very beginning about opening this. Um, we are facing right now, as cities and towns, not just here in Ma- Massachusetts, but in America, uh, we're still in the midst of a pandemic, uh, very much in the midst of it. Uh, we, we are dealing with uh, racial tension and racial unrest in our country, and we're headed potentially towards an economic uh, recession, potentially worse than the Great Depression. So it's a really challenging time. Uh, to be in office, but but it's also a very uh, it's a blessed time to be in office uh, because we get to deal with the issues and tackle the issues that are right in front of us that are on top of mind for a lot of people. So uh, I look forward to getting into conversations. Probably more I could say, but I want to thank thank you and thank all the participants uh, who are listening today for being involved in this important conversation.
1: Thank you, thank you so much. We will definitely come back to those issues. Um, Mark Drayson, let's hear from you. Uh, from a regional perspective, um, thinking about sort of uh, the work that you do, the priorities pre-COVID, and how does your uh, organization uh, work across the region? Uh, Thank you, Sid. Uh, I'm gonna try and be brief because I know folks
6: are lining up with questions. Uh, I have the honor and and pleasure of running the Metropolitan Area Planning Council, the regional planning agency for Greater Boston. Uh, We work on on a number of issues, smart growth, regional collaboration and equity throughout our region. We serve 101 cities and towns, basically from Cape Ann out to Framingham in the west and down to the town of Duxbury in the south. Uh, You know, uh, there are a few communities uh, such as Boston, Cambridge, a few others that have large, extraordinarily capable staffs. And then there are others that have small, extraordinarily capable staffs. And we try and fill in, particularly for those, Because issues may arise in regard to land use, in regard to the environment, in regard to public health, in regard to clean energy, that, you know, the individual city or town may not have the staff to deal with and So we try and provide some of that expertise to them. We are supporters of smart growth. Uh, What is smart growth? We believe that the easiest way to define it is to say that most of your growth uh, and most of your new infrastructure should come in places where people and infrastructure already exist. Uh, try and save some of the areas that are beautiful natural areas, and try and encourage people to live closer to one another, and to commute more by transit and to work closer to one another, and to have more urbanized environment even in the suburbs. There's a way to grow smart in the city. There's a way to grow smart in the suburbs. There's even a way to grow smart in rural areas. They just aren't all exactly the same. Uh, During the COVID crisis, uh, I have seen really an unprecedented level of collaboration and sharing among the cities and towns in the region. Isn't always the case. Maybe it won't last forever, I'm hoping it will. But I think we've really seen the best out of our local leaders over the course of the last uh, four months. Uh, And this goes all the way from, you know, a huge city like Boston to a tiny town like Bolton. Uh, Everybody has been meeting together. Everybody has been talking and sharing together. Everybody's been trying to speak with one voice to the administration, both on Beacon Hill, the Baker administration, the legislature, also to the federal government, uh, and trying to deal with the issues one at a time as they come up. Testing and tracing, still an enormous issue. Uh, The question of opening schools, an enormous issue about the best way to do it for our kids, our parents, and our teachers. Uh, The question of what's going to happen with public transit which is so incredibly important to our region, but a lot of people don't want to travel on public transit right now. An enormous issue that we're trying to deal with. And as Mayor Walsh says, um, it is also a blessing to work here during these times because you get to deal with some of the very most important issues that our region could possibly face. You get to deal with these issues, on these issues, with partners. And you know historically that these are the times that make for change. This is when change happens, when everything's kind of hunky-dory and things are going like usual. Well, most people just kind of say, okay, let's let's put one foot in front of the other. We don't need to make big changes. For years, we were trying to get more people to work at home so they wouldn't burn as much fossil fuels going back and forth from work. Now, all of a sudden, it looks like that might change and more people might stay working from home even when uh, we have a vaccine and COVID is over. So enormously challenging issues, but invigorating as well. And I feel blessed to work on them every day with
1: these, these great folks in our cities and towns. Great, thank you so much for being here. Let's let's go back the other way and uh, start with you, Mayor Walsh. We're hoping to get a sense, uh, all, all the people that have joined us today in the audience of what has what's the last five months really been like? How has the work of your city changed, um, either because of COVID, the racial equity turmoil, global Recession. What surprised you most? What's keeping you up at night now? Just give us a sense of kind of like what's life as a mayor like going through um, what the world is going through right now.
5: Yeah, l- l- thank you. L- let me. Uh, uh, February 6th, I think it was, was the first case of COVID 19 in Massachusetts and Boston. March 6th, we had about six cases. March 10th, we were all of a sudden looking at shutting everything down. The pandemic was sudden. Um, we've been strengthened by it in our response but we had to look at our shelter system, our health care system, our food access system, our social safety nets, uh, We had our budgeting. Uh, as Steve mentioned, we, that we've been blessed in the city to have uh, six consecutive years of AAA bond rating so our budget w- was, was preparing us for this even though we didn't know what we we're preparing for. Um, we, a public health emergency was, 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 was called. Uh, we shut schools down, switched to remote learning, We distributed 30,000 Chromebooks. We've we've served over 2 million meals to our students and families in the city since March. Uh, We added hundreds of beds across the city of Boston uh, to help densify, reduce density, I should say, in our shelter system and treat homeless individuals uh, impacted by COVID-19. About a third of our homeless population uh, end up coming down with COVID uh, and 12, 12 homeless people died. So when you think about the numbers, our system was able to help people stay alive. We had to protect housing security. Uh, We created rental relief funds. We put in place an eviction moratorium. The state followed suit with that, something that was really important. For our small businesses, they all had to shut down. We put together a relief fund, uh, and and we we set up takeout options. And and now, as as we look to the recovery, we have outdoor dining and a lot more outdoor dining. Uh, We had to set up test sites across the city, uh, areas that were most hard hit by the virus. We had 20 test sites across the city. We have mobile testing, and we created a health inequities task force uh, because right in the beginning, the, the, the infection rate for uh, black, African-American was 44%, white was 24%, Latino was 17%, and Asian, I think, was 7%. Uh, and, and we saw a huge inequity there, and we created a task force to be able to work to, to, uh, to bring those numbers down. Um, as we think about gradual reopening, uh, we've worked uh, lo- using data as, as one of our primary sources. Uh, And in some cases, we've gone further than the state's recommendation for reopening uh, due to Boston's specific challenges. Um, The the thing that's really complicated here is that uh, we are seeing a lack of leadership in Washington, uh, and Boston needs to show a better way forward. Um, Our city, we're staying strong. We're keeping our priorities in order. Um, And then on top of that, on top of COVID, uh, about 10 weeks ago, George Floyd got killed. Um, he was killed in Minneapolis, and we had no idea what the implications were of that were. There were some small protests in Minneapolis, and then those protests took off across the country, uh, and, and they came, they're here in Boston, and they were here in Boston, and, and it's important for us as we think about moving forward that we, 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 we hear, not just listen, but hear what people are talking about. People are looking for a different way. People, people are frustrated. Uh, with, with the lack of progress, particularly with the black community and, and with a black community who's not gotten opportunities and options. And Yvonne can talk a lot more articulately about this because we're on calls and Avon's helped me as well. And Danny, we have a meeting that we talk every, every now and then about how, what we're dealing with. But I'm hopeful for the future in Boston, but I'm also cautious about the future in Boston. We cannot go back to the old normal. We need to find a new and better normal moving forward. Uh, and when I say that its just it's not just about health inequities and everything else it's also about uh, we have to we owe the generation, the younger generation, we owe them as much work as possible we can do on, on racial equity in, in all aspects of society, quite honestly, not just government society. So I am hopeful for the future here. Um, I think the pandemic has certainly um, put a pause on a lot of things for a lot of us, maybe to reflect a little bit about how do we move forward. I think if the pandemic didn't happen. Um, And and George Floyd uh, is murdered and happened. We're kind of chugging along and and we're measuring things in a different manner. I think as we get out of this, we're going to be looking at society in a whole different through a whole different lens.
1: Mayor Spicer.
4: I was taking a breather, just just listening to Mayor Walsh. Like, wow, you know, it's just like deja vu, and it becomes flooding back in uh, to think about, you know, what were those early days like? And I and, and I distinctly remember uh, attending a meeting in Somerville with, uh, you know, experts in infectious diseases, and listening to them uh, recap all that was happening in Italy. and and what are some of the predictions that potentially could happen in the United States of America. And that was on March 10th. I I left that meeting uh, just flabbergasted with my uh, director of public health. And we we both heard the same thing loud and clear. And the the best way to stop the spread of this uh, virus is to look at places where people congregate the most, and the first thing is schools so that was the first order of businesses to to close schools, uh, our senior centers, our libraries, or places where we new people came together. I declared a state of emergency in the city of Framingham, and, uh, and you know the the um, the, the process went from there to looking, first of all, mobilizing ourselves to get the things we need within the city of Framingham. Uh, and, and, I, and I focused on making sure people had a roof over their head, food on the table, and they had a way in which to, to keep their, their families together. Also, how are we doing with testing? How are we doing uh, to ensure that the, the spread of the virus uh, standing up uh, operations for food security, uh, uh, rental assistance programs, um, and subsequently for businesses, um, uh, loan programs for them. But also, I looked at the way uh, the teams of, of people that work in the city of Framingham redeployed themselves in ways that were so helpful. For example, uh, our library team, the libraries were closed. So the library staff took to calling in, in conjunction with our uh, senior center staff, calling all of our our seniors and checking in on them personally to see if they're okay. Did they need resources? And so that was, um, you know, an outreach program, uh, whether it's creating uh, face coverings for seniors, you know, it just, people just have been mobilizing. And to do this work, I have met daily, and I mean daily, with my leadership team. Uh, and uh, looking at our data, looking at our numbers, because once again, data does inform actions on where we need to go. And up until this week, our numbers were like, going down steadily, maybe one new case, uh, you know, uh, uh, happening. And just this week, um, we're starting to see a climb in double-digit uh, cases of infection, and which is causing me great concern because we have locked down this city from. Closing parks and uh, to me doing something very drastic, taking down all basketball hoops and nets and so forth, just to to uh, to avoid temptation, uh, you know emphasizing social distancing hand washing um, And uh, it it is every day. It is a learning experience, and as we all are now grappling with, is that what will we do about school? And and our superintendents are trying to sort out three different formulas of to to open schools, but also looking at the data and where do we need to go? Um, I'd like to say during these five months, um, you know, I've learned a lot about me uh, as a leader, and I've also uh, allowed people to step up and lead uh, their divisions and do things out of the box that, you know, they may have not had an opportunity. Um, I can also say this time has taught us a sense of gratitude. Gratitude for the small things that we get to experience. And, um, you know, the the um, George Floyd uh, uh, killing, it was horrific, not only for cities around the country, but I think we all were traumatized by watching this and really looking at what do we need to do to answer. And, uh, and we're still answering because, you know, there were marches and protests, but the, there's still the need to, what do we do now? How do we keep moving this? And, you know, and as Mayor Walsh so eloquently stated, it, you know, it's listening, it's uh, committing to some action. And rectifying uh, institutional racism and and we have to name it, we have to call it, and we have to fix it and as leaders uh, we we have an opportunity to do something that uh, has been missing and, and and that is to get in some good trouble and keep fighting that 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 fight in a way that um, make sense for our leadership. And 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 some, you know, and of course all of us have gone through this period of of like making decisions and wanting to make sure we're making the good decision, the right decision. And that's part of us talking to each other as mayors and town managers, we confer with each other on a regular basis. So having that relationship has been a godsend. And I think all of my colleagues can agree that it has really just to have somebody to bounce ideas off. And uh, I, I, if I can step back and look at where we are now, I, I feel pretty good where we are in the city of Framingham, you know, but I'm cautious and I'm, I'm optimistic and I'm cautious about where we need to go.
1: Thank you. Mayor Rivera, Let's same question, but let's shift a little bit more thinking about the future. Really, the, the topic of the panel being what cities and towns need now. Let's talk about this. Obviously, cities are a complex ecosystem, small businesses, nonprofits, government agencies, educational institutions. All of these things have come up as we think about how we provide services for citizens. Um, a lot of people joining the call today are trying to think about where are cities going? How might they engage differently in cities? What, what, what's needed there when you think about Lawrence or wh- where is it going? What, what's the next phase in, as Mayor Spicer just mentioned, with numbers spiking, It, it um, you know, we should not be talking about this being over, obviously. It's still something that we are very much in the middle of, but as we start to look ahead, um, Tell us about Lawrence.
3: Well, I, I tell you, I mean, for us, we had just settled down from a citywide um, you know, crisis before in the Columbia gas crisis. And literally eight months prior to this thing happening, we had just kind of put to bed some of these big issues around the Columbia gas crisis, where three communities had lit, been overpressurized, And so we had stood up all this mechanism, all this support system that, to get in and support people um, and thankfully we had, you know, if that's a silver lining, we had this muscle memory where we just stood all that stuff back up. Uh, and so, you know, it was clear to us the things that were important because it had been important to us before, food and water to people, uh, making sure you touch base with folks, checking in on the businesses, all these things that we had learned in the previous crisis became very clear to us. Um, and it, it, we just kind of stood all that stuff back up. And we didn't have, we didn't have a health and human services department before. And because we went through this process, we actually did one in the, in the budget, and she went right to, right to work with this new crisis. Um, but because this, this crisis has shown, and not just this crisis though, you know, the murder of, of George Floyd, uh, along with this crisis, has shown a huge flashlight on the inequities, um, the importance of housing, the importance of food. Um, I think people took those things for granted until so you had to stay in your house and not go anywhere else, uh, and, and then you had to go shopping. Uh, all these things became, and then the importance of the people that were doing that work. Uh, for Lawrence, uh, the the coronavirus has been a, a perfect storm. Either you lost your job because the, the 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 place you work shut down, or you lost your job because you couldn't find daycare, or you lost your job, um, you know, uh, for for myriad other reasons, or you had to go to work in the middle of this thing uh, because they were part of the the essential workers. Uh, and when you have uh, as big of a diverse community as we do, everybody was working. Um, And so we do have a bunch of people uh, from the gig economy, some of the uh, small businesses that went on the unemployment benefits, but a lot of people in Lawrence um, had to work. So we became the third uh, per capita in infections in the Commonwealth. Um, And so it was a place that if you were going to pick a place to get it, we were in the top three. So we think about how do we go back after all this? What does work look like? Uh, we need to figure that piece out, how we, we, we interact with each other uh, with, with equity. Um, you know, one of the things that I didn't say earlier, one of the things that we're most proud of for us, we're uh, a minority majority police department, um, 18 of the 25 department heads in our, in our community are people of color or, or uh, are women. And so the, the cities have to figure this piece out and do it. And again, what, what's really surprising is that we were able to pivot very fast Stay home, everybody. Stay at home. Stay off the highways. Get food to people. Um, all these things that COVID forced us to do. So next time, when somebody says, "Hey, we have a big idea," and everybody says, "Well, I don't know, I don't know if we can do that big thing," well, you just have to remind them. We just all spent eight, you know, six months at home on the on the call, and we all kind of look think about um, the outside seating. And I know it looks great if you ever see pictures of it in Boston. We're trying to emulate all that wonderful outside seating eating. And it it feels that way in Lawrence. All we did was take away a couple of parking spaces, put up some Jersey barriers. They've been decorating the Jersey barriers and we've been innovative about it. So I I think that that's the piece of it. How do we, you know, you know, for us, we have some, you know, commercial space that's not going to get refilled because people are just going to work from home. How about we make those spaces housing? That way we can bring the price of rent down. Uh, and, and, and and create a better, you know, lived environment here. So I, I think it's very exciting. There's a lot of hope. I mean, I'm afraid of a second wave, mostly because we're not done with the first wave yet. <laughs> so that's a yeah. big fear, you know, but I, there's hope at the end of it that the, the, the new cities are, are going to be great
1: places. I, I, I'm, I'm loving these themes about innovation, about the collaboration across cities. Um, I, I can already see where we're going with some of the calls to action here. Uh, Town manager Bartha, tell us about looking forward in Danvers. What sort of, what are some of those lessons? What are the things that you're thinking about? And then I'd love to to think about us pivoting, Mr. Drayson, on on data, really thinking across the region, especially with this audience of researchers, data scientists, et cetera. You know, what are some of those issues? How might they be thinking about how to engage in these issues? Uh, Mr. Bartha?
2: Thank you. Yeah. So I mean, we, Danvers, I could I could echo everything that's already been said. We've we faced a lot of the same issues on a, a bit smaller scale than our you know than our city counterparts, um, but collaboration you know has been really uplifting. Um, one of the things we've been challenging our you know managers and leadership team to do is sort of be taking notes right now about the changes we've had to make the past five months that are actually working better than you know what we were doing before because I think there's going to be a, a real opportunity for reimagining the way that we do a lot of things. Um, You know, Mark alluded to that with, uh, you know, what sort of long term implications is this going to have on traffic patterns, commuting? um, And secondarily, if there's, you know, open uh, commercial space, that's opening up as Mayor Rivera just said, is that changing housing development patterns, um, putting extra need on, you know, cheap high speed internet for companies that are investing in, you know, staying home and not getting into the city and what the implications are for Boston. so, you know, on a on a positive note, those are the kinds of things that we're thinking about in terms of, you know, regulatory processes. We had our board delegate quite a bit of authority to staff back in June to make sure that we could approve modifications to license holders, restaurants, small businesses, so that, you know, things that used to have to be uh, posted for a public hearing and wait two weeks and come on a Tuesday night at 7 p.m. to make your case, now staff can review this stuff and in 48 hours get a yes back. Um, and that's really, you know, given some flexibility to our business community, most of whom are suffering, you know, dearly right now. Um, One of the things, and I think data is going to be the sort of the theme that ties this together in terms of what we need. But when I think about sort of what's keeping me up, you know, the, you know, will our business community survive a second wave financially and our residents? Um, And what are the implications of a second wave for us as an organization when 75 cents of every dollar we spend is on the people providing services. You know, what happens then uh, if, if that second wave cripples our economy a second time? And I think um, the the piece looking forward that's most of interest to me is, you know, and I think where the public health crisis and the racial inequity uh, merge is, you know, we're, we have 9% of our community that identifies as non-white. Um, you know, how are they faring right now? They were, we recognize they were underrepresented. You know, underrepresented before covid Um, we know from the data that they're suffering disproportionately during covid and this third area is an area that you know we've decided to tackle both as as an organization and in partnership with our human rights and inclusion committee Um, you know we we view this as an opportunity to sort of lean into that conversation to make a good community better Um, but as i you know if i have time we'll talk a little bit about data is presenting itself as an early obstacle in that in that in that effort so um, i would in the interest of time, I'll, I'll stop there so that we can get to the, 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 uh, the roundtable part.
1: Yeah, let's get to, um, and we have questions from the audience as well. We want to pivot to those. Obviously, for Microsoft, we are working with cities all around the world and have been for years related to data and technology. We're seeing more innovation now, more partnership, taking on different issues, just you know, coming at that um, engagement in a very different way. And Mr. Grayson, I'd love to hear from you as you look sort of at the broad um, uh, Boston region. Uh, what are some of those issues that are that, that data can provide? Some of the breakthroughs on what 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 should we all be thinking about? One of the issues we face with data is that you
6: know we've seen a lot of services in our society become more more uh, private, uh, more privately held, uh, and sometimes uh, operated without. Well, I think they're employees, but without with private contractors, people that are called private contractors, even though I think they look, smell, and feel like employees in my opinion. But uh, we are trying to make sure that those sources of data are available for policymaking. One of the things that MAPC has been working very hard on is to get the necessary data from the transportation network companies, from the Ubers and the Lyfts. It's to get the necessary data from Airbnb. Uh, It's to provide resources to our communities, to our individual municipalities so they can collect and analyze data, which again, there are a few municipalities who do a very good job at that, large and small, but there are many that just don't have the resources to do that. Uh, Data can inform uh, all of our public policy debates and all of our public policy discussions, as long as it is open and democratically available. Honestly, one of the issues we faced early on in COVID with the testing information was there wasn't enough of it, it wasn't being gathered in a routine manner, it wasn't being made available by municipality, and it wasn't all being made public. And we've gotten a lot better about that, but we haven't come all the way that we need to. And that is especially true now at this very interesting and difficult inflection point when things have gotten a lot better and they still look better here in Massachusetts, but they're getting a lot worse in the rest of the country and folks are saying, well, we're gonna make our judgments based on data. Well, knowing what that data is and making sure it isn't cherry picked and making sure it's available to everyone so that it can be criticized, honestly, criticized in the press, criticized by researchers, uh, is terribly, terribly important because if we're making life and death decisions on that data, everybody has to know what it is and it has to be open to interpretation and discussion. Thank you. I, I want to shift. Can,
1: we I, only just, say, can I just say please. something about
3: that? Yes, yeah, please. That what's important is, and, and if it wasn't for these, uh, at least for, for communities of colors, if it wasn't for places like the Trotter Institute at UMass Boston and the Vastone Institute at UMass Boston um, and all these university uh, institutes that specifically deal with the need for that data and how it impacts communities of color um we would be basically at ground zero and so another call to action is to support these places that are gonna
1: drill down to the information that mark was talking about. great i am recognizing we only have a few minutes left frankly we could there's so much to dive into and so much that i would love to talk to you i want to turn to a question that came in from the audience thanking you all for sharing perspectives and experiences today the questions moving forward how do you envision continuing this collaborative spirit among different cities and officials that developed because of the pandemic, Mayor Walsh? Why don't we start with you?
5: Yeah, I think that one thing that people don't didn't understand or recognize that a lot of the collaboration between mayors has always existed. Uh, we we work and share best practices. Uh, you know, we have a pretty tight knit community here in 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 Massachusetts. You know, Denny Rivera and and Avon this is not the first time we've been on panels together. It's not the first time we've we've collaborated together. Uh, And and I think that we support each other and we help each other out. Uh, I think COVID has kind of put that, uh, taken that to a new level, Uh, but we're all all three of us are affiliated also with the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Uh, And and the U.S. Conference of Mayors is, is a network of mayors from around America, from cities like New York and Los Angeles, Chicago, Boston, to smaller cities around America. And, and that's another place where, where we really lean on each other and share ideas and best practices. One example of that, uh, in the very beginning of COVID, uh, Jenny Durkin, the mayor of Seattle, um, in the very beginning, if everyone remembers, Seattle was the epicenter of the COVID crisis. Uh, and, and Jenny called me, and, and Mayor Durkin, I should say, called me and told me what to expect. And she, she gave us a little bit of an understanding, heads up actually, on nursing homes, what was happening in Seattle. And if you look in Boston, a lot of our debts in Massachusetts happened in nursing homes. but in the city of Boston, debts happened there as well, but we're able to get in there because the nursing homes are run by the state. But in Boston, we ran and got in there and and provided PPE to the nursing homes and provided additional staff there. So I, I think moving forward, really, really collaborating on a whole host of issues are really important. One other quick example, um, talking about uh, clearly I'm a white guy, as you can see. Uh, and, and when you talk about racism and race, uh, you know, I can't see through the same eyes as Yvonne Spicer, but I can call Yvonne Spicer and ask her for her ideas and input and in how to help in a situation on how to address race and, and the same for Danny in uh, his community and, and they with me. So I, I think that it's always been a, a tight knit understanding, but I think even more so moving forward, because the challenges of uh, what we're facing, uh, racial unrest, economic challenges, reopening challenges, these are all challenges that all of our cities, Danvers and and, and Lawrence and Framingham, we go through these on a daily basis.
1: I, I wanna, I know that we're about to get the hook here, and I wanna give everybody a chance to just, with a lightning round, Give us something as, for this audience that you would love for them to be thinking about, engaging in, um, especially if, if, if there's something related to a policy issue or technology or data that could really play a, a role post-COVID. You know, what, what's that hope? What would you love for people to engage in? And, miss uh, Town Manager Bartha, we'll start with you. Thanks. Um-
2: so I wanna, I would quickly, first of all, I love Dan's concept of using this platform as a call to action, um, because as you mentioned, said there's a lot of brain power tuned in right now. And I wanna make the case that towns like Danvers are sort of the forgotten uh, sweet spot for collaboration and experimentation with the research community. Uh, we're big enough to have staff in key places uh, that can work with data and, and dissect data and use it, but we're not big enough to dedicate those resources, you know, solely to those projects. Um, and just real quickly, two examples of where we'd love to sort of harness the horsepower. We, we just rezoned 75 acres of our downtown this spring as smart growth, nod to mark, um, overwhelmingly supported by our town meeting. It's going to increase density. It's going to increase affordability. It's going to require developers to invest in our open space. But on an earlier panel of this conference, I heard some researchers describing the parcel level work they were doing in Boston, layering in, you know, half a dozen or more variables and I thought, whoa, you know, how much better could our zoning have been if we had access to that kind of analytic work to underpin the work we're doing. And we work all the time with MAPC um, and they're great partners in that, in that work, but there's, there are things that the, you know, the folks at MIT and elsewhere are doing that, you know, towns like Danvers, you can really, your work can be implemented and make an impact. We've already seen 150 housing units um, either developer in the pipeline, which is not a big number in Boston terms, but that represents a, you know a percent and a half of our total housing count in town, so it is a big deal. Um, and then I already mentioned with you know uh, equity and diversity, you know we we know where we want to go, we know the conversations we need to have, but we understand that data is going to help frame a lot of
1: those discussions. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Great, Mayor Spicer. and We're really doing lightning round, so you got to get we got to make them quick.
4: I'm going to say. What we need to really focus on is infrastructure, Wi-Fi connectivity for in our communities to allow people to work from home, for schools to be able to operate more effectively. And moreover, it should be free.
1: Mayor Rivera.
3: Uh, The one tech one is uh, if you can get a talk to DPH about a new MAVEN system. If you don't know what the MAVEN is, it's the database that goes after the uh, epidemiology It tracks all the sick people. I don't know how to say that word. Um, And so we need a new database for the state. So please uh, get in there and figure out if we can get some like, uh, you know, one of those people, all the the coders go after it and try to make it better. Uh, And two easy ones, run for public office at the local level because it's the most important part of your life and support housing in your communities. All you 84 people watching, support housing in your communities.
1: Mayor Walsh.
5: I, I gotta make sure I'm not on mute. Uh, I think that the one thing I'd say to everyone is that we have to address challenges that, that we've been dealing with uh, from the pandemic and, and longstanding uh, disparities in our society. Uh, we must create a new and better normal, uh, one that's inclusive that lifts everyone up. And uh, don't sit on the sidelines, don't stay on the sidelines, get involved.
1: Mr. Drayson, you are gonna get the last word, to call to action. What would you recommend? I don't often, I don't
6: often get the last word. I'm not sure I deserve it. but. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to build on, on Dan's comment about housing. Uh, I'm actually a housing planner. That's what I spend a lot of my time doing and thinking about it's kind of what's in my heart. And uh, you know, we still have a very segregated region around the country. People talk about that as being a Boston problem. That is not a Boston problem. It is a greater Boston problem. We have a desperate need uh, to, to have different kinds of people living with each other, to have different races and ethnic groups living with each other and understanding each other. And people usually live in houses, not all the time, but usually. And unless we build more housing and find ways to build more housing that is available and affordable to everybody everywhere in the region, then a lot of the problems that we've seen during COVID and a lot of the problems that we see in regard to the relationships between law enforcement and the communities of color those are problems that we're going to continue to see because we are not living with each other.
1: I want to personally thank each of you for taking the time today. We know how busy you are uh, and all of the work that has been taking place um, for years and in particular in these last five months. We thank you for that work as well, keeping our community so strong. It is. Um, you know it, it may seem like you're just kind of going day to day and common sense but for, for people outside of the system we it can sometimes seem so cloudy we don't know what's really happening in cities and how it's all working i want to thank Bari again for organizing um, this panel and the whole conference and turn it back over to dan to close us out
0: all right well thank you all thank, thank you so much um, You know, Mayors Walsh, Spicer Rivera, uh, Town Manager Bartha, Mark, and of course, Sid, for leading us through this conversation. I I think this was really the perfect closing to this conference. Um, And to the attendees, thank you for joining us. Uh, um, And with that, we have arrived at the conclusion of, in my estimation, what was the longest one-day conference in history. Uh, And so we're here Um, and so all kidding aside, it's been 15 weeks, Uh, 11 topical panels covering everything from transportation to housing to pollution to climate, Uh, three keynote panels, almost exactly 70 speakers and we we crunched some numbers last night, we have to be more rigorous about it, but it seems we have at least 550 to 575 total attendees uh, and never fewer than 50 in any panel. So This is quite the conference, Um, and when I look back to early March, uh, when we got started reimagining this, or even to September when we started planning this conference in the first place, uh, it would be really hard to say I or anyone else could have pictured this particular moment and the pathway that brought us here. Um, So there are a lot of lessons here. I want to share a few, hopefully succinct ones, to kind of close out the conference. I want to thank all of you the broader Bari community, the attendees, the speakers from every panel, those who ask questions and engage directly in this ongoing conversation. Without this community, we don't have panels, we don't have a conference, we, we have nothing. Um, so, so that's first and foremost. Uh, next, I just wanna go through our sponsors. Uh, the Boston Indicators Project at the Boston Foundation, the Bar Foundation, the Northeastern University School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs, the Harvard Graduate School of Education, the Initiative on Cities at Boston University, the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University, um, and Kids.org, the Institute for Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University, the Harvard Data Science Initiative, MIT Connection Science, Microsoft New England, Sasaki, and our studio all contributed to helping put this together, and we, we thank them very much. Um, other partners included um, Boston's Mayor's Office of Mechanics and the City of Boston Analytics team, the Sasaki Foundation, Code for Boston, the Engagement Lab at Emerson College, the Northeast Big Data Innovation Hub, and the Metro Lab Network, all of whom worked closely with us in designing and thinking through the conference and, and getting the word out to all of you. And Almost last, I wanna note the conference committee by name um, because normally they would be on the back page of a conference program. We don't have a conference program and so you can't go look at the back page. Uh, So I do need to give credit to these people because these people committed their time to imagine what the conference would be to review proposals and to work with us to to execute on on everything that you've seen over the last 15 weeks. Uh, And that includes Amy Sprung from Microsoft, Eric Gordon from Emerson College, Esteban Morrow from MIT, Catherine Lusk uh, from Boston University, Kim Lucas, formerly of uh, the city's uh, data analytics team, but now of the MetroLab Network, um, Elizabeth Hess of the Institute for Quantitative Social Science, Luke Schuster from Boston Indicators, Ted Landsmark uh, from uh, the Dukakis Center for Urban and Regional Policy at Northeastern, Tim Reardon from the Metropolitan Area Planning Council, and Elizabeth Langdon Gray uh, from the Harvard Data Science Initiative. Um, And then I'm almost done with my thank yous, I promise. uh, I I need to thank uh, Jenny Stevens, who is the director of the School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs at Northeastern University and has been very generous uh, with the support of our center being there um, and and her team working with us on, on this and other efforts. And then finally, to the Bari team. right? You guys all get to see me every week, uh, but there's a full team behind this, as speakers regularly refer to. uh, To Will Pfeffer, the initial executive producer of the conference, and and now at Code for America as the brigade liaison for cities up and down the East Coast. Uh, And then to Alina Risti, Riley Tucker, and Sage Gibbons, as well as Ryan Gosser of, of the School of Public Policy, who were all involved throughout, but then when Will left, uh, they really stepped up. And a lot of people noted that it was a seamless transition and it felt that way on my end as well. Just a a fantastic team. And then to David Braid, Bari's new program coordinator, who has been a champ in stepping up midstream, uh, taking over the operation. So I kind of should have anticipated like months ago, we needed a a laugh track or a clap track. We don't have that unfortunately, but they deserve everyone's uh, major round of applause. So with that, I want to conclude with lessons for today and lessons for the conference, and then I I want us all to have a beer uh, or wine, if that's your choice. Um, So I see three main themes, and I may be cribbing a bit from the title of the conference, but but I think that's important anyway. So the first one is co-creation. We've seen dozens of talks and perspectives on how researchers, policymakers, nonprofits, foundations, community organizations, and members all work together to identify problems and questions of interest, to gather and generate data, and to explore solutions. Second is equity. This was an original goal of the conference, to capture how all of these many panels illuminate the disparate experiences of different groups of uh, Bostonians, but, but really residents of all of greater Boston. Um, by race, by socioeconomic status, by geography. Um, But the death of George Floyd in the middle of the conference um, and the ensuing public conversation really catapulted racial equity into the national limelight and in so doing placed the same topic in stark relief in every week of the conference since then. Um, And then third is the theme we were not anticipating last fall when we started planning the conference, it's COVID-19 and the pervasive, persistent disruption that is a pandemic. Uh, We started the conference at a moment when most of the public discussion was about infection and transmission, Um, but we chose in that opening keynote to call out the impacts to our other systems, the labor market, primary and secondary education, housing, mental health and social services, right, and charting the challenges ahead and trying to propose solutions and where we go next. Um, And then we bookended that theme today, three months later, with what sounded to me like no less than a call to action for this community, right? These are the things we need to start working on now. And I love the lightning round question. And in a sense, it was the shortest part of the conversation, right? But in a sense, it was the most direct, this is what we need to do, right? And this is how we help municipalities to move forward. And that should be our focus for the next year and beyond. These are the projects we look forward to seeing at the conference next year. Um, And to that point, we'll send out more about this next week, but Bari has spent the last three months behind the scenes. We've been developing a COVID in Boston and in some cases Greater Boston database that is drawing from administrative records, social media feeds, internet platforms, so on and so forth to try to track what happened before, during, and after, partially after, we're not really after. Uh, the, the pandemic. Um, and that's going to be a really valuable public resource for research and teaching that we hope can drive a lot of work in the next year. So in closing, our three themes come together, right? The other day I was talking to Eric Gordon, um, who I mentioned earlier, uh, and, and he said, I hear everyone saying build back better, but better for whom? Building back better doesn't just happen right? Innovation is not value neutral. It has to be driven by the kind of society we in fact want. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Smart, Equitable Commonwealth, co-creating the society we want. New episodes are released weekly, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can write to us at bari, B-A-R-I, at northeastern.edu. Follow us on Twitter at BariBoston, or visit our website at bostonarearesearchinitiative.net. Support for this podcast and the 2020 Bari Conference comes from Boston Indicators at the Boston Foundation, the Barr Foundation, the Northeastern University School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs, the Harvard Graduate School of Education, the Initiative on Cities at Boston University the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University, the Institute for Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University, the Harvard Data Science Initiative, MIT Connection Science, Microsoft New England, Sasaki Associates Incorporated, and our Studio. Thanks to the partners who have helped us promote the conference, the City of Boston Analytics Team and the Mayor's Office of Newark Mechanics, the Sasaki Foundation, Code for Boston, the Engagement Lab at Emerson College, the Northeast Big Data Innovation Hub, and the MetroLab Network. We'd also like to thank the members of our conference committee. Amy Sprung, Director of Strategic Partnerships, Airband US at Microsoft. Eric Gordon, Professor of Civic Media, Emerson College, and Director of the Emerson Engagement Lab. Esteban Moro, Visiting Professor at the MIT Media Lab and Associate Professor at Universidad Carlos III de Madrid, Spain. Catherine Lusk, Director, Initiative on Cities, Boston University. Kim Lucas, Senior Director of Civic Research and Innovation at the Metrolab Network. Elizabeth Hess, Executive Director of the Institute for Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University. Luke Schuster, Director of Boston Indicators at the Boston Foundation. Ted Landsmark, Distinguished Professor at the School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs at Northeastern University, and Director of the Kitty and Michael Dukakis Center for Urban and Regional Policy. Tim Rudin, Data Services Director, Metropolitan Area Planning Council, and Elizabeth Langdon Gray, Executive Director of the Harvard Data Science Initiative. This podcast was produced by Will Pfeffer, Ellie Tallarita, and me, Dan O'Brien.